On this week's episode of Black Tea, we're going to have a conversation about what is still wrong with the cannabis industry in Canada. Also going to go through some of the things that made us happy this week and spill a little bit of tea in the end. I'm Andre Demise. I'm Melina Williams. And this is Black Tea. Welcome to Black Tea, everybody. Andre, how are you doing this week? I'm doing great this week if we subtract out, you know, the results of the U.S. midterm election. So we're going <laughs> to keep ourselves in a happy space and talk about the good stuff. Mel, what made you happy this week? Oh, a lot of things, but um, I will restrict it to shouting out Kayla Graves. Um, she is a friend of mine and she's also um, at Bustle as the fashion and beauty editor. And she recently wrote a series called Standing by Our Sisters, a look at black women's unique journeys with breast cancer. Mm. Um, and she kind of begins the piece by um, talking about how black women are 20 to 40% more likely to die from breast cancer, but it's widely thought of as a white disease. So um, this series will explore young black women's journeys through breast cancer, body image, and beauty. And it goes into um, these four stories about black women and they remember what it was like to lose their hair during breast cancer treatment. So mm. I just feel like this work is so important, especially in the context of fashion and beauty. Um, and we don't often hear these real specific stories about black women and something that's uh, a disease that's very real in our community. So shout out to Kayla. Shout out to her. I, I, I think that that's great. I mean, you know, everybody listening to this podcast, I'm pretty sure has had somebody in their life or has lost somebody uh, to some form of cancer. And I think, you know, it's really good to be able to have the conversations with one another and uh, get real and get raw about it. So I really appreciate what Kayla's doing. That's great. Absolutely. What about you? Uh, well, there's a, there's a couple of things. I'll make the first one short. It, there's a uh, children's uh, physician assistant for pediatric neurosurgery at the Children's Hospital of Orange County. His name is Tony Adkins. They know him as the dancing doctor at this hospital because what he does is he films these videos with patients, but also with his uh, his peers, his, his coworkers. No and basically the whole idea is just to like cheer children up because, you know, going into some of these surgical procedures is super scary for young kids. Yeah. And I'll play you like some clip of the video, but basically it's like him dancing down the hallway and like, you know, um, hanging out with a patient and like dancing and doing the nae and all these other dancing moves with them. I'll, I'll play the audio. Oh, no so, way. first of all, this dude is handsome as hell. <laughs> yeah, he's hot. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, there's this young lady oh in the God, wheelchair, and so she's, like, fun. she's boogieing in the wheelchair, and he gets behind her, and he starts dancing and stuff, and, like, just the happiness on her face. He's a that good is, dancer, too. Yeah. This is awesome. I've seen teachers do this, but not doctors. I have, yeah, I saw there was a teacher um, who did that, like, the, super, the cool high fives with the kids when they were on the way into class. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That. So, I, I, I love when people do, like, stuff like this. I love us. Um, the second... And this is something that I think is super important for black communities across Canada is if, you know, the media and the, the workplace does not set you a place at the table, then you go and build your own. Hmm. So uh, a CBC story on two recent uh, uh, college graduates from the University of King's College goes that they started an independent news agency that's going to investigate stories focusing on issues that affect the African Nova Scotian community. So That's the, amazing. Yeah. Um, like this just needs to happen everywhere. The the grads' names are Sandra Hannenbaum and Tunde Balogan. I hope I got their names right. And they created a uh, a news agency called the Objective News Agency. It's run out of their living room. It's run out of uh, uh, Balogan's living room. He edits everything on a desktop computer that was donated. Um, but you know, with with help from family, friends, uh, the people in the community, they're going to be creating documentaries and 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 news stories to fill in that gap to fill in the underserved 
uh, areas of, of Nova Scotia's black communities. That's incredible. So shout to them. I really hope that, uh, you know, they'll get a lot of listens, views, etc. Because this is something that we need in, in Canadian media. Weed is finally legal after decades of public debate, discussion, and people getting locked up that really didn't have to be. We're finally at a point where we can talk about this stuff openly. And joining us to have a conversation about the ins and outs of Canada's current cannabis culture, we have Ana Maria and Anajor. Welcome. Thanks for having me. We're really excited to have Ana Maria here because not only is she an expert um, in the field, an amazing criminal lawyer, but she also leads the Campaign for Cannabis Amnesty. Tell us a little bit more about what Cannabis Amnesty is all about. So the Campaign for Cannabis Amnesty started off as a collective of lawyers, social entrepreneurs, academics, researchers, and individuals who are concerned that there is a segment of the population that were being excluded from the proposed cannabis legislation. We had a vision of Canada with the legalized cannabis regime as being inclusive and uh, rectifying the harms that were done by the criminalization of cannabis for over 95 years. And what we were disappointed about was the fact that there was no element in the proposed legislation, which is now law in Canada, Mm -hmm. that dealt with the underlying harms that really compelled people to advocate for cannabis to be legal. So the fact that cannabis is A, not not as dangerous as uh, our criminal justice system purports it to be, B, that cannabis is used as a pretext for the over-surveillance and uh, over-prosecution and over-criminalization of communities of color, Mm -hmm. and C, the fact that communities of color and indigenous communities were over-represented in the arrest and conviction rates. And that realization, those facts, sort of underpinned this desire to transform the spirit of cannabis legalization laws into something that provoked social good and social progress in society as opposed to just opening the doorway for large corporations to come in and build a business in Canada. So there was this equity aspect of cannabis legalization that we thought was completely missing from the proposed legislation. And the way in which we thought to best compel the government to turn their attention to this was by asking them to incorporate uh, first in the actual legislation and then afterwards when it was clear that they were not going to do so in a separate piece of legislation, an approach to what we called cannabis amnesty. What we were proposing is that the government, in order to recognize and rectify the harms that have been done through cannabis criminalization, particularly on communities of color and vulnerable and marginalized individuals, the only right thing to do was to provide a complete expungement of records for the criminal records of these individuals where they were convicted of simple possession for cannabis for personal use. So that's going to be legal now. And we thought it doesn't make any sense for a person to continue to be criminalized, particularly where we have a history of discriminatory Mm -hmm. uh, criminalization for something that is now legal. And so that's how the campaign started. It took off. We're now a not-for-profit organization. We've partnered up with a number of licensed producers in the industry who uh, also come from a space where they recognize the abhorrent history of drug prosecutions in this country and in the United States as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we can divorce the two yeah. um, and uh, have provided us with resources. We've connected with community leaders, um, amnesty seekers. They're telling us their story. We've even been sort of in strong negotiations with the government on what cannabis amnesty would look like. And we assisted in the drafting of Bill C. 
415, which is the bill that was um, tabled on October yes. the 4th. And that bill contains the fruit of our vision and our efforts mm-hmm. for a fair Canada. I think it's, that's absolutely wonderful. So thank you for outlining that. And I guess I kind of want to go back to when you're talking about things on the law and what you would expect and what advocates would expect of amnesty. Right. And sort of when you're talking about like the expectations, um, the discrimination, the disaggregated race data that people have been talking about for 20 years when it comes to arrests specifically for marijuana Mm -hmm. and that the fact that it was so completely ignored that you actually started an organization to address the fact that nobody was talking about this. So I'm just wondering if you could speak to that. Well, I think that the legal community, at least the legal community that is in close proximity to these issues, so mm-hmm. I would say the criminal uh, the criminal bar and um, advocates in the human rights space yeah. are very well cognizant of these issues. Mm-hmm. This is not this is not something new. This is not something that's disrupting our uh, consciousness in any way. But do they um, find your organization something refreshing? I'm sure that some of them would. Right. Um, I, I have received quite uh, complimentary letters of support from members of practicing lawyers. Mm -hmm. But what troubles me about the fact that I had to create an organization is the fact that this is all not new. This is not new. This is old news. Uh, Justice Cole's report on systemic discrimination and anti-black racism in the criminal justice system uh, in 1995. Yeah, we had McMurtry's report. We had Parks. We've had a lot. We had had Stephen Lewis. Yeah. I mean, this is... But people want to talk, and that's the whole thing, consultation versus action. Yeah. And And now that it's legal, it's clear who gets to benefit. Exactly. And it's disappointing because not only is it quite a prominent idea in the minds of people who are present and have to deal with this on a daily basis, but our politicians also recognize this. Both Trudeau and Bill Blair have made public statements saying that the disproportionate impact of drug prosecutions, cannabis prosecutions, on Black Canadians and Indigenous Canadians is one of the greatest injustice that exists in Canada. Well, Bill Blair should also apologize right after he's done saying that. I mean, Trudeau is our prime minister, but he wasn't the chief of police. Yeah. He wasn't the chief of police of Toronto. And the fact that Bill Blair has made that statement means that he must, at some mental or intellectual point, recognize the harm that the policies that he directed his police officers to follow uh, were harmful. Well, how come he can't say that? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think we know why he can't say that. (laughs) Come on now. Yeah. Well, he can also bow out of making money. Well, it's not him. It's the the people that he used to be professional colleagues with. Mm-hmm. So you have Kim Derry, for example, former uh, deputy chief of police who's involved in the industry. You have Julian Fantino who's involved in the industry. Yeah. The one that stands out to me the most, to me is the most egregious, uh, was John Turner. This goes way back to the late 1960s and early 1970s when uh, Canada had basically the largest government commission on the recreational use of not just marijuana, but drugs, period. Yeah, the Ladane Commission. The Ladane Commission. Yeah. And that was headed up by Gerald Ladane, who was at the time uh, the dean of, I believe, was was it Osgoode uh, University or, or the the, uh, the law school? Um, but it was a, you know, it was a, I wouldn't even say like a multipartisan, but it was people from like all professional walks of life, but nobody who was involved in law enforcement. Mm-hmm. on the Ladane Commission. They interviewed tens of thousands of people. And after aggregating literally hundreds and hundreds of pages worth of data from professional experts from all around the world, they bring it to Parliament and the Justice Minister at the time, uh, who was John Turner, this is before he became Prime Minister, mm-hmm. 
The justice minister was just like, yeah, we're not going to do anything about this. Okay, but did and they— And then John Turner himself, you know, ended up on the board of a marijuana company. But did they um, survey any street-level drug dealers, the people that they actually matter? They everybody. Every, they talked I to would over be 12, surprised. 000. I would be surprised if they did. They did. This is, no, they did. They really? talked. Yeah, they talked to people who were addicts. They talked to people who were dealers. They talked to literally everybody okay. at coffee shops, in university lecture halls. They talked to people when from all across this? the country. This was in, b- between, I think it was like 1969 and 1972. It was a really long time ago. Well, it was a really long time ago. It was also one of the most comprehensive studies that was ever done <laughs> in the whole world. But the government didn't listen. So what was the point? Well, that's, that's the whole thing, is that the same people who, who at the time were basically saying that, you know, if you legalize drugs, then you're basically sowing chaos and disorder, okay, are the same people who are now participating in the <laughs> yeah, industry. Yeah, their war on drugs, yeah, the, 1990 like, American. The hypocrisy of that uh, <laughs> is something that enrages me. Yeah. Because there are people who are vulnerable people who are today suffering because of the criminalization of cannabis. And the people who put them in jail right. are profiting. And that's what matters. It, like, I find that to be abhorrent and disgusting. Well, that's why I ask, like, I'm sorry, this is about him. That's why I ask, did he publicly apologize? Because if you're ignorant now, you have to apologize. You can't, we can't turn around and say, he can't say this because of his friends, but he feels bad now. No. I don't think Bill Blair's profiting from, I don't think he's, he's, he's not profiting, but his colleagues. Yeah, but do white, do, yeah. do white people, do white wealthy Canadians colleagues. not profit off white supremacy by proxy? Does he not profit from this in general? Of course he profits from it. We just can't see it. We can't wait till someone, like, till we see it. Here's what I would say. <laughs> Here, here's, here's what I would say. I find it interesting that nobody's sort of seen this correlation. And I saw it because I actually toured Canopy Growth, which is, I, I believe, is still the largest cannabis producing company in the world yeah. by market capitalization. I toured their tweed factory in Smith Falls, Ontario. And I tried to have a conversation with them about this, and they were very not open to it. But when I toured the factory and I saw, you know, the workers, I saw the people working in the customer service area, I saw the people in the lobby, and I was, I was trying to pay very good attention to this. I lost count after about 100 or so people that I saw on the factory floor. I saw two people that were not white out of their entire were workforce. Were you surprised? That I no, I wasn't. I mean, Smith Falls, Ontario, so just okay, but neighborhood were you surprised? demographics. But no, I'm not surprised yeah. by that. I find it interesting that on one hand, we're going back to the 1970s and 80s and 90s. And the way that marijuana laws worked, the way that prosecution worked, and the way that our, our criminal justice system worked, it disenfranchised and incarcerated people of color. The regime that we have now, maybe not necessarily in terms of gross incarceration, it's not the same thing because they've changed the laws so that you have to have a larger amount on you to be arrested. But it still disenfranchises people of color from the industry. The only people who were able to profit at that time were white people as far as working in law, law and law enforcement. The people mm-hmm. who are profiting now are white people who are working yeah. in the marijuana industry. We're still disenfranchised from the gonna industry. But I'm going to need people to like go further with that and say like, if white people are making, if we can't see them making money um, when we're getting arrested for this, yeah. and today when we're talking about who's profiting, forget who's profiting, we're still being punished. Like people are benefiting off of this, period. And we're losing. And I feel like that's why this work is so important. This is data they've been burying forever. And now we're allowed to like say out loud who was who was doing all these things. Like, yeah, this so, is the way the system works. So as far as hard numbers go, um, here are some of the ones that were aggregated by uh, Vice uh, using data from different police services and then correlating it with Stats Canada. So in Ottawa, for example, the population of black people in the city is 6.3%. In 2017, they represented 26% of marijuana arrests. 
if we're talking about Vancouver, the indigenous population there is 2.5%. The black population is 1.2%. Black people represented 5% of arrests. Indigenous people represented 11% of arrests. And you could go through every major city in Canada and you will see a number, like a population amount that is wildly disproportional to the uh, population who are arrested for marijuana-related offenses. Yeah. So yeah. How, do you, how do you square that with the current regime? Well, I mean, I should actually just say before you answer that, that like, I'm just so used to reading these stats that I probably took that for granted. Like, yeah, it's pretty obvious. So I actually yeah. want to know how you feel about the regime and how you feel about giving people these numbers when they're not aware. Well, I think you need to add another sort of control number to that to make it significant. Mm. And that number is that the use of cannabis and the possession, so the use therefore possession of cannabis is equal across the board. Mm. So it would make sense if a particular segment of the population was overrepresented if they overuse. Right. But they're not. Um, the use among people from all ethnicities and all backgrounds is equal across the board in Canada. When you have an overrepresentation of a group in the numbers of arrests and prosecutions, that means that there is something going wrong because they are the ones that are being targeted yeah. and it is not their white counterparts. Right. And that is unfair to say the least, but it also shows the way in which systemic um, racism operates in the criminal justice yeah. system. And it also shows that like the way data is collected can be racist as well. Like what you what you're talking about is how disaggregated data is collected and things that like Stats Canada hasn't even really committed to. So I think that what you're saying is a larger point about how do we document this information? Yeah. The community has been doing it forever. Yeah. Well, some of the some of the really interesting data um, that has been produced by one of my colleagues in the uh, at the ca campaign for cannabis amnesty is data, uh, and his name is uh, Dr. Akwasi Owusu Bempa, mm -hmm. and his data shows really like really is revelatory about the impact of systemic racism, especially among youth. So he talks about factors like the fact that. White young people between 15 and 18 years of age actually self-report consuming more cannabis than black young people right. that age. It's a stigma. Right. But they are underrepresented in police uh, apprehension data. Uh -huh. So what we're seeing is that people who are actually the higher consumers, they are not being policed. Their communities are not right. being policed. It's like carding. It's like carding. Uh, if you hang out in any community long enough, you're going to find a weed smoker, right? Yep. And if you have 10 police officers hanging out in one community and nobody in Forest Hill, uh, guess which community is going to have 10 people represented from the right. community mm -hmm. sitting in jail waiting for bail? It's going to be the, the kids from Rexdale, yeah. right? Yeah. So there's an allocation of resources that goes to the over-policing of these issues in certain communities. Mm -hmm. But then there's also the implicit bias yeah. that stems from anti-Black racism that governs each of these encounters. So I often find it quite astonishing when I have clients who are white and I have clients who are Black and they've had similar underlying grounds for police to stop them and the outcomes of those encounters with the police are so different, right. so varied. In, in the aggregate, if we look at this data, we see that people who are um, uh, white are more likely to be given a free pass and mm -hmm. saying, said by the police, you know, don't do that again. It's not legal. I'm not going to get you this yeah, time. Don't do that again. Yeah. Um, and whereas black uh, people who are doing the exact same thing are more likely to be treated with aggression, mm -hmm. um, uh, more likely to have a weapon pulled on them, more likely to uh, be asked to step out of their vehicle, right. um, and more likely to be treated roughly when made uh, when they make inquiries about their rights. 
uh, more likely to be handcuffed when arrested, more like so all of these elements that really can color a person's perspective of the criminal justice system as being not for them, as them and their communities are being constantly under attack. It is the enforcement of drug laws where we see how this manifests itself in society. Mm. And when I was growing up, so I grew up like in northern Toronto on the border of Scarborough and North York, Victoria Park and Shepherd. And I remember like I went to a very multicultural high school and all of my friends and I like we wanted to make something of ourselves. We wanted to be get out of, of uh, neighborhoods where we felt that our potential wasn't being fulfilled. And in order to, to do that, we would not touch anything yeah. that was mm-hmm. illegal. You keep your head up. You do not even like if there was a party, I don't care if my friends are going, I'm not going because I don't want I don't want any involvement with the police. So we were so absolutely careful not to have any association or affiliation with anything that can be construed as illegal because we knew we were targets. I really don't know how we could get any farther into this without being here the entire day to talk about how unfair the current system is. But we really do thank you for your time and, and for lending your brilliance to this podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Now it's time to spill the tea. Andre, what's on your mind this week? My tea this week is a bit more complicated than I would normally get into, but I think it's important. Um, there was a lawsuit launched against Canada Land, the uh, media criticism organization, by the MeToWe Foundation. And that was because of an article that uh, Canada Land published, which alleged ties between uh, the MeToWe Foundation and some shady organizations. Uh, apparently, the reporting wasn't correct. I'm not going to totally get into that because you can check the lawsuit out online if you want to. What I wanted to talk about was, why is it that when we claim to want to help countries in the global south, we don't look to the organizations that operate out of those countries. We look to organizations that operate out of our own countries and assume that if we give them money, then the right things will get done with that money. So skipping over even the uh, the Midway Foundation, a little while back, early in October, I believe, there was a charity that operates in Liberia called the More Than Me Foundation. And More Than Me was was there to uh, to build schools and help communities thrive and so forth. It was started by a lady in the United States that had no background in charity work whatsoever, but was able to build this gigantic nonprofit organization. And uh, earlier in October, um, ProPublica, in joint with Time Magazine, published this huge and shocking account that one of the higher-ups in the organization, um, who I guess was in a relationship with the founder, he was raping the young women at these schools that they built. Uh, his name was Macintosh Johnson. He was a co-founder of More Than Me. It's hard for me to even talk about this because just, just reading the report of how horrific this human being was and, and taking these vulnerable girls and, and sexually exploiting them. And in 2014, he, uh, he passed away. He, he, he died of AIDS. And when this bombshell report came out, the founder, Katie Myler, basically wrote a uh, you know, letter saying, well, what about all the good that we did? When Haiti's earthquake happened in 2010, I remember it was all hands on deck for that one. Like Everybody was donating whatever they could. I me- this was, I think, probably the first fundraiser that I saw where you could text a donation right off of your phone. The Red Cross had, I believe, $500 million that they went into Haiti with for the purpose of rebuilding, reconstructing helping the communities uh, become even better than they were in the first place. What ended up happening, and, and you can read multiple reports on this, that $500 million more or less got squandered. They had almost nothing to show for it. Or, you know, these organizations that, you know, uh, if you buy a shoe, they'll donate a shoe to a country in need. Or if you, you know, give your your old uh, and, and no longer used clothing to this other organization, they're going to fly it to Africa and give it to the kids. 
which then ends up destroying their own retail industries because why buy stuff locally when you just get it for free over or for free from overseas? I don't understand why it is that we can't make space for nonprofits that work in the global south that are based in the global south. Find organizations. And if you want to help, for example, if you want to help Haiti, you know, there are a number of Haitian Canadian organizations. I actually went and found one myself to figure out how I could donate and how I could support Haiti through an organization that works out of Haiti. And I think where all of this comes from is people do not trust charity organizations that are based in countries that are populated with brown and black people because inherently they believe that there's something corrupt about it. But they will trust an organization run by white people here in the Western world because we implicitly will trust them to do the right thing. And as we see time and time and time again, these shady associations or these horrific stories pop up and we act completely shocked about it. If you actually want to help people who are in need, talk to the people who are in need and stop trying to launder your guilt through organizations here that you have no idea whether they're actually helping or not. Find an, If you want to help a community, work with nonprofits in that community and stop trying to launder your guilt through people who look like you. That's all I got to say. Mel, what do you have this week? So my tea this week is about an article that was written on Medium last week. It's entitled um, Journalism While Brown and When to Walk Away. And um, it is by Sunny Dillon in Vancouver. And I remember seeing this on Twitter and it immediately went viral because it was about a journalist of color in Canada telling the truth, basically. So I'm just going to go over a couple passages in the piece um, and then tell you what I think just really quickly. Sunny Dillon has been with the Globe and Mail since 2010, and he holds a Master of Journalism from the University, um, from UBC's Graduate School of Journalism. At first, he began by referencing a piece that was written in June that talked about uh, how journalists of color can deal with being in a lily white industry, which is something that, you know, I've been in this industry for a very short period of time, about a year, and it's something that I just, I know it's exhausting and I know it's an issue just coming into it. So he talks about being assigned um, his final story at the Globe and Mail. This is a story that he did not pitch. And by pitch, that means that it wasn't his idea. And it was on October 22nd. I'm quoting his piece in Medium. And it was a follow-up to the Vancouver Civic election, which had seen the city vote in a nearly all-white council. He was given five hours to write this piece. And um, he went out to, I guess, do interviews. And he spoke with, quote, some of the people of color who were on the party slates, but picked up thousands of fewer votes than their white colleagues. Their conversations were thoughtful and heartfelt. And then um, his bureau chief basically walked up to him close to the deadline and said that, they now wanted him to actually focus less on race and to focus more on the fact that eight of the 10 elected councillors were women. And that had been the focus of the meeting, but he claims that it had not been. So, you know, obviously this didn't sit well with him. And when he went back to his bureau chief, she was not receptive to his critique of what he had to write about. And he ended up walking off the job. So some of the things that I just kind of wanted to pinpoint, but I absolutely think you have to read the article to under kind of understand this fully. And it's an excellent piece. Basically, he touches on colorblindness and how in this industry, you're known as being objective and colorblind. And, mm. um, but that basically means that people don't see us if you don't see color, right? So mm. like, it's not a good thing. I know that many um, white people think that being colorblind is positive because you're not saying anything bad about us, but it actually means you don't see us. And if you, call, if you tell us that we're not objective, that's actually a good thing. We actually add a lot of richness and nuance to things. Um, it's not a negative. So I, I kind of find that like the whole notion of being objective and colorblind goes along with us being subjective, this dichotomy of us just always complaining, which I think is totally wrong. 
And just the way he was talking about being exhausted in white work environments, I think it's something that we all can relate to in any industry. And I think that's normal. The Ontario Human Rights Commission has documented uh, many stories about people of color at work in Ontario, um, and they've taken appropriate action. Last year, the Law Society of Upper Canada, they released their findings of years of studying lawyers of color and licensing candidates and basically how they're not comfortable in white legal environments. And then Hadia Rodrigue wrote that wonderful Globe and Mail article about being black on Bay Street. So it's not as if we don't, these things aren't documented. And then I think the most brilliant part of his piece was when he talked about how people can congratulate themselves for being diverse or putting a few people of color in the room, but they still don't have any power. Mm -hmm. So he didn't have any power to even tell the story that he was assigned. So I think that like, this is a huge pivotal moment. And I think Desmond Cole tweeted uh, when the article came out that people are going to be looking to him and to Vicky Mochama because she was, she also, I believe, lost her job at the Toronto Star as well. But it was in a, it was a different situation. I believe Desmond's was different as well. But like people actually should be looking at the people in power and why they're allowing these excellent journalists to leave. It should not be about looking at the three people who have, you know, mm. put their self, put themselves out there and talked about it. So I think that this is a great conversation that we can have, but it is not up to the marginalized to lead the conversation. Always the last in, always the first out. That's just the way it goes. But you it know, shouldn't be. The what was so frustrating about Sonny's article is I don't understand why for journalists of color and Mel, you like we've had conversations about this. You completely get this. Why is it that for you to have integrity as a journalist of color, it means giving up your profession? Well, it doesn't, and that's the thing. Like for them to even take the issue of like talk about eight women, mm-hmm. you know, these are eight white women. This is what third wave feminism and womanism is all about. This is what equity is all about. Like, you can't actually tell us to go back to the 80s when we're in 2018. Like, I I just can't believe it. Like, I should I should be able to believe it, but I can't. No, it's what what's being asked for in that case is is incomplete analysis. Like, we want an analysis of the gender aspect, but we do not want an analysis of the racial aspect. That's just so, so what you're saying is you're arguing for inferior journalism. That's ridiculous. Yeah, that's it. That's all we got for this week. First of all, shout out to Frequency Network for blowing up the spot and for giving us a slew of great podcasts. Thanks to our producer, Ryan Clark. Thanks also to our music producer, Black Orchid. You can follow me on Twitter at Milena Williams. You can follow me on Twitter at Andre Demise. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Catch you next week. Bye.